Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M. This is volume 13, issue number four, which corresponds to the week of January 9, 2023. This week, we're going to discuss literature review in neurology. We're going to discuss the micronutrient potassium, as well as obesity in teenagers and young children, and the possibility of a new drug called semi-glutide as a therapeutic intervention. As I stated a couple weeks ago, I'm going to spend this year focusing a lot on neurology as the world of neurologic research is really hitting a new stride with excellent, excellent discussion points on how memory is laid down, how new diseases are forming, how potential mitigation measures could be ascertained through lifestyle mitigation and all kinds of different new cutting edge research that may help us all stay in the optimal neurologic shape and also avoid the pitfalls of aging in a neurologically negative way. So let's look at some of the literature. Number one, memories can be laid down well without sleep attached to it, according to a new study in PNAS. It has long been said that sleep is the key to culling neurons that are related to memories that are unimportant and also increasing the quality of the neurons for memories that we need to keep while sleep deprivation tends to disrupt this reality. The authors of this current study looked at two groups of rats, shown a novel object, and tracked the quality of the memory formation. They state, quote, Long-term memories are considered to be optimally formed during sleep, but they may also be formed during wakefulness. Using behavioral indicators dissociating object and context memory in a novel object recognition paradigm, in combination with pharmacological inhibition of hippocampal activity during post-encoding consolidation, we show that in contrast to sleep consolidation, weight consolidation does not comprise the spatial contextual integration of the novel object recognition memory and is impaired by ongoing hippocampal activity. Accordingly, remote novel object recognition memory after weight consolidation was even superior to that after sleep consolidation when tested in a context differing from encoding. Our study directly comparing sleep and wake-dependent consolidation demonstrates that memories consolidated during wake and sleep different quality, but not necessarily in strength. End quote. This comes to us again in PNAS from Sawangjit et al. 2022. So for me, this is just a new piece of data stating that there is a possibility that a fair amount of memories can be laid down well during the wakeful state and that most of the memory culling and consolidation occurring at night is true, but not the only piece. So it's pretty interesting. More to come. Number two, we all know that the sleep deprived child has an inability to control emotions and actions in a neutral, grounded way. What does sleep loss do to adult behavior? Quote, sleep loss is known as a robust modulator of emotional reactivity, leading to increased anxiety and stress elicited by seemingly minor triggers. In this work, we aim to portray the neural basis of these emotional impairments and their possible association with frontal regulation of emotional processing, also known as cognitive control of emotion. Useful specifically excuse me, using specifically suited EEG and functional MRI tasks, we were able to show that sleep deprivation alters emotional reactivity by triggering enhanced processing of stimuli regarded previously as neutral. These changes were further accompanied by diminished frontal connectivity, reduced REM sleep, 
and poorer performance. Therefore, we suggest that sleep loss alters emotional reactivity by lowering the threshold for emotional activation, leading to maladaptive loss of emotional neutrality. End quote. Simon et al. 2015. This is so important to understand from a parental and relational perspective. Those humans that are sleep deprived are emotionally dysregulated and end up having a much difficult time, much more difficult time holding and maintaining normal relationships. They end up being lonely in the long run, which could become a loop effect on sleep deprivation, which in turn could and likely will lead to a mood depressed state. I think of screens, phones, video games, and other sleep disruptors here. Quote, people are less interested in social interaction when they're sleep deprived. For example, we designed a task where an experimenter and participant would face each other and they would walk toward each other. The participant would decide when someone got too close and we would measure that distance. Consistently, when people were sleep deprived, they preferred others to be farther away. Mood may play a part in social consequences of sleep loss, but it's not the whole story. We've controlled for mood in studies of social behavior and seen that social withdrawal is not just an effect of mood. We've also found that sleep deprivation reduces activity in what's known as a theory of mind network in the brain. These are areas that help us think about other people, what they might want, what they're like, and how they are similar to or different from ourselves. Quote, also, quote, we're such social beings. Why would our sleepy brain shut down the network that helps us connect with others? Question mark. The brain and the body need sleep so much that they start letting go of whatever we don't immediately need once sleep is missing. In nature, the only time you see animals sleep deprived is when they're migrating. They just had a baby or they're starving. So being sleep deprived is really a stress signal that makes us want to accumulate as much food as we can and be more alert to threats. We don't have the capacity for anything more than that. The more time you spend awake, the more sleep becomes the one thing that you need to focus on. Everything else just goes in the background. End quote. Yuhas D. et al. 2022. So for me, this is just one of those pieces of information that says, hey, sleep is critical to emotional regulation and therefore emotional relationships. If you are not sleeping well, it behooves the person that's struggling with sleep to be cognizant of their emotional state check out from a situation that is potentially going to go sideways because you're tired. Try not to engage in situations that could be problematical for you when you're sleep deprived. We all know this with children. If they stayed up late the night before, that entire next day is going to be tricky. So learn to be very careful in your own relationships, no matter what age you are, when you are not sleep full. Number three. Gaslighting is a real phenomenon that is gaining ground in the scientific literature as a way for one member of a group or relationship to make the oppressed upon in the situation believe that their thoughts are irrational or untrue. The use of this technique, if conscious, is diabolical in its scope and effect. For one to gaslight another is to consciously abuse the person psychologically to gain a power gradient and hurt the other. This is nothing short of evil. On the other hand, it is a tricky reality and truth for many relationships as the gaslighting perception by the oppressed may be a feeling and in truth a judgment call and not a nefarious event to actually gaslight. Think of a child saying that they felt X occurred by your actions when it clearly did not. How is one to handle it? Do you agree with their feelings and assume the guilt of an untruth while you hold space for them to move through the event as perceived? 
do not admit the event as truth, but instead let it exist while you hold space for them to work through it nonetheless. Do posture and deny to everyone's loss. I submit that option two seems the most rational and relational. There is an article in the newsletter written by Sweet that takes a much deeper dive here. You're welcome to go click the link and read the whole piece. Number four, in an opinion piece in the New York Times, we see an article about the truth regarding food and health, where it lies with the overconsumption of animals as a food source. This comes to us from Grunwald, G-R-U-N-W-A-L-D-M, 2022. So for me, in that article, we certainly as a society consume far too much animal meat protein on a historical basis to the detriment of the forest and other land that is taken for grazing. Humans are great at doing what they wish, despite the ramifications to the planet and other species. As a provider of care, my belief is that the preponderance of anthropological and medical data leads me to think that we would be better off with meat a few times a week varied across different species as eaten. I do not think there is enough data to make any other conclusions. I will submit that I eat way too much animal protein compared to what I probably should. But that's just my two cents. Number five, devices and children. Quote, in this cohort study of 422 parents and 422 children, increased use of mobile devices for calming children aged three to five years was found to be associated with decreased executive functioning, and increased emotional reactivity at baseline. However, only emotional reactivity had bidirectional longitudinal associations with device use for calming at three to six months of follow-up. The associations were found to be increased in boys and children with higher temperamental surgency, end quote, Radeski et al. 2022. In our clinic, we see frequent use of screens to babysit children while another is examined and discussed. While this seems innocuous in this one instance, the frequency of use at other times may and likely will come back to be a negative on emotional health. What are some solutions? Dr. Radeski recommends the following. Sensory techniques, young children have their own unique profiles of what types of sensory input calms them. This could include swinging, hugging, pressure, jumping on a trampoline, squishing putty in their hands, listening to music, or looking at a book or sparkle jar. If you see your child getting antsy, channel that energy into body movement or some sensory approach. Name the emotion and what to do about it. When parents label what they think their child is feeling, they both help the child connect language to the feeling states, but they also show the child that they are understood. The more parents can stay calm, they can show kids that emotions are, quote, mentionable and manageable, end quote, as Mr. Rogers used to say. Use color zones. When children are young, they have a hard time thinking about abstract and complicated concepts like emotions. Color zones, blue for bored, green for calm, yellow for anxious or agitated, red for explosive, are easier for kids to understand and can be made as a visual guide kept on the fridge and help young children paint the mental picture of how their brain and body is feeling. Parents can use these color zones, and color zones in challenging moments. For example, you're getting wiggly and in the yellow zone. What can you do to get back to green? Offer replacement behaviors. Kids can show some pretty negative behaviors when they're upset, and it's normal instinct to want it just to stop. But those behaviors are communicating emotions. So kids might need to be taught a safer or more problem-solving replacement behavior to do instead. This might include teaching a sensory strategy, i.e. hitting hurts people. You can hit the pillow instead. Or clear communication. If you want my attention, just tap my arm and say, excuse me, mom. That comes to us from Mostafavi, M-O-S-T-A-F-A-V-I-O, 2022. Number six. 
apolipoprotein E4 genotype is highly associated with Alzheimer's disease according to many studies over the years. Now we have a subgroup analysis that changes this narrative. In this genetic association study, a novel variant associated with a, Alzheimer's disease is identified. R251G, always co-inherited with Epsilon4 on the APOE gene, which mitigates the E4-associated Alzheimer's disease risk. The protective effect of V236E variant, which is always co-inherited with Epsilon3 on the APOE3 gene, was also confirmed. The location of these variants confirms that the carboxyl terminal portion of the APOE plays an important role in Alzheimer's disease pathogenesis. The large risk reductions reported here suggest that protein chemistry and functional assays of these variants should be pursued, as they have the potential to guide drug development targeting APOE, end quote, Gwen et al. 2022. Here's another study in APOE4, number seven. In a study in the Journal of Science Translational Medicine, we see a study looking at the defective lipid metabolism in glial cells of humans. These immune cells in the brain accumulated extra triglycerides, fats, which could impair activity, a hallmark of neurodegenerative disease. The use of choline supplementation was capable of reversing these negative effects despite the APOE4 single nucleotide polymorphism. From the study, quote, the E4 allele of the apolipoprotein E gene, otherwise known as APOE, has been established as a genetic risk factor for many diseases, including cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. Yet its mechanisms of action poorly uh, are poorly understood. APOE is a lipid transport protein, and the dysregulation of lipids has recently emerged as a key feature of several neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's disease. However, it is unclear how APOE4 perturbs this intracellular lipid state. Here we report that APOE4, but not APOE3, disrupted the cellular lipidomes of human-induced pluripotent stem cells, derived from astrocytes generated from fibroblasts of APOE4 or APOE3 carriers, and of yeast-expressing human APOE isoforms. We combine lipidomics and unbiased genome-wide screens in yeast with functional and genetic characterization to demonstrate that human APOE4-induced altered lipid homostasis. These changes resulted in increased unsaturation of fatty acids and accumulation of intracellular lipid droplets, both in yeast and in APOE4-expressing human iPSC-derived astrocytes. We then identified genetic and chemical modulators of this lipid disruption. We showed that the supplementation of the culture medium with choline, a soluble phospholipid precursor and a micronutrient, restored the cellular lipidome of its basal state in APOE4-expressing human iPSC-derived astrocytes and a yeast-expressing human APOE4. Our study eliminates key molecular disruptions in lipid metabolism that may contribute to the disease risk link to the APOE4 genotype. Our study suggests that manipulating lipid metabolism could be a therapeutic approach to help alleviate the consequences of having the APOE4 allele. This comes just from Sienski et al. 2022, S-I-E-N-S-K-I. For me, this is critical data. Coupled to the first APOE4 discussion on subgroups, we see a picture whereby a genotype of a population, if known, could help guide the person to start using choline as a supplement and also talking about a very specific type of diet, like an anti-inflammatory diet, to reduce potential upstream, upstream problems that may make Alzheimer's disease risk worse through hypercholesterolemia, hyperlipidemia, and things of that nature. So for me, this is important data. A lot more to think about, a lot more to come in the land of neurology over the coming weeks. 
Section two, potassium. Potassium is a mineral found abundantly in some foods and on earth as a white salt. It gets its name from potash or plant ash, which is loaded with potassium. Every cell in the body utilizes potassium in some way. It is necessary for signal transduction in all nerves and muscles, including the heart. It's critical for kidney and hormone function. Your intestines require it to move and your blood requires it to keep acid-base balance. We use it in carbohydrate metabolism and so much more. Potassium, like sodium, has an electron by itself in the outer atomic ring that allows it to give away the electron, easily forming a positive ion that is used by the body readily in chemical and energetic reactions. Causes a gradient, electrical impulse. These are great things, especially in muscle activation. Sources of potassium in food include all meats, including fish. Soy and other legumes, as well as broccoli, are loaded with potassium. Potatoes with skins on them, banana, kiwi, citrus fruit, prunes, plums, avocado, apricot, dairy, and all nuts round out the list. Great sources of potassium. Deficiencies of potassium are very dangerous and occur primarily with acute and chronic diseases like excessive vomiting or diarrhea, kidney impairment, or adrenal gland dysfunction. The symptoms of deficiency include bowel movement dysfunctions, high blood pressure, weakness, and cardiac rhythm disturbances. Insufficiency is often associated with constipation, fatigue, muscle weakness, and cramping. Potassium overload is generally related to diseases and medicine use. It is rare in children except in the kidney or heart type diseased patients. Too much potassium presents with heart rhythm abnormalities and can lead to death, otherwise known as hyperkalemic arrhythmia. Children taking kidney diuretics or heart medicines are at the greatest risk for low and high potassium levels. Overall, a regular diet filled with vegetables, meat, and fruit will supply adequate potassium for function. If your child has any of the above symptoms of insufficiency, consider increasing the intake of apricots, nuts, and meats in their diet. Finally, Section 3, Obesity Treatment for Adolescents. Semaglutide is a new injectable drug that has shown incredible results in adults with diabetes and obesity by activating the glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor. This action increases insulin release, glycemic control, and blood glucose utilization. This, in effect, decreases adipose storage and blood glucose increases that lead to symptoms of diabetes and metabolic syndrome over time. Before I discuss the study, I want to point out that this medicine is 100% unnecessary if children and adolescents follow a healthy diet and exercise program. This is a truly interesting way of looking at the world that we're talking about a medicine to treat a ubiquitous problem in humans that is truly controllable through choice, lifestyle. However, it is a problem that we have to address, so this medicine may be something we want to use. This is truly a medicine only for those who cannot in any way make the appropriate changes for health and will have worsened health and disease without this pharmacotherapeutic regimen. The study, quote, a total of 201 participants underwent randomization and 180 of them or 90% completed treatment. All but one of the participants had obesity. The mean change in body mass index from baseline to week 68 was 16.1% with semiglutide compared to 0.6% with placebo. Massive difference. At week 68, a total of 95 of the 131, or 73%, of the participants in the semiglutide group had a weight loss of about 5%, compared to 11 of the 62%, excuse me, 11 of the 62 participants, or 18%, in the placebo group. Reduction in body weight and improvement with respect to cardiometabolic risk factors, including waist circumference and levels of glycated hemoglobin, 
were greater where semiglutide was used as opposed to placebo. The incidence of gastrointestinal adverse events was greater with semiglutide than placebo at 62 versus 42%. Five participants in the semiglutide group and no, particip no participants in the placebo group had cholelithiasis or stones of the gallbladder. Serious adverse events were reported in 15 of 133 participants, which is 11% in the semiglutide group versus six of the 67 participants in the placebo group or 9%. This comes to us from Weg Huber et al. 2022, W-E-G-H-U-B-E-R. So for me, this is likely a very important addition to the medical pharmatherapeutic regimen or the fight against this disease, metabolic diabetes and metabolic syndrome, if somebody is unwilling or incapable of making the necessary dietary changes in a re reasonably normal fashion to prevent end-stage disease. So I wish it wasn't necessary, but it clearly is. And so that is a potential therapeutic regimen coming down the pike. And for those that need it, it's a great addition to the armamentarium and we should use it. But I'm always of the oak that I hope people will take the upstream risk choices to mitigate risk downstream. Song of the week, Lost by Riverside. Well, that's it for this week, folks. As always, hug those kids. The information provided in this audio cast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.